Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliet Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. It's no secret that American history has a lot of dark sides, to put it generously, I guess. Um, Slavery, Jim Crow, racism, all included. And nowadays, we have lots of conversations trying to address this past through new policy and creating new, I don't know, ways to address everything that happened and the effects of that that are still occurring today. But There are a lot of black intellectuals who are still making the case that we can reconcile that past with the promises of the American founding, these old promises, and we don't necessarily need new policy. Um, Today, on June 16th, 2022, I'm excited to be talking to William B. Allen about this. He's a resident scholar and the former chief operating officer of the Center for Urban Renewal and Education in Washington, D.C., We're going to be talking about a book that he recently edited and wrote parts of titled The State of Black America, Progress, Pitfalls, and the Promise of the Republic. Welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be with you, Ms. Selgren. So before we jump in, what is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? You should know that something has changed, particularly in your generation, Uh, When I was your age, uh, we didn't believe anything anyone told us. Uh, Today, uh, young people tend to believe the script. Uh, They are less rebellious than we were. Uh, They do not, by habit, challenge orthodoxy, conventional wisdom. And so the most important thing is for them to understand that it's okay not to believe what you're told. It's okay to challenge. That's a good response. I'll I'll revolt a little bit more. Um, <laughs> be a rebellious teenager. So, you grew up in the segregated South. Can you yes. tell us about that upbringing—the good, the bad, all of it? Well, of course, that'd be a long story, but I can make it short in the following way. Uh, obviously. Growing up in a segregated society means growing up within certain social constraints, but it doesn't mean not growing up. And that's the most important thing to observe, that though we were in segregated schools, my schools were obviously all black, all my faculty were black, Uh, the community was rigidly separated from the predominant community in the town in which I grew up. Uh, Nevertheless, we managed to get an education. <laughs> we had teachers who were responsible and dedicated and who did inspire us to seek to achieve our best. Uh, therefore, while we were working under social constrictions, we were not working under human limitations. Certainly, there are aspects of living in the South that were unpleasant. For example, there was an atmosphere of quasi-terrorism or at least terror, if not terrorism. I want to correct that. The sense of terror is what I have in mind. Because, of course, it was the age that succeeded when I was a youth to widespread public lynching, and some of it was still going on. It was as, I was as old as 10 or 11 when Emmett Till was lynched. And the wow. entire country uh, experienced that traumatically. So, so that characterized the time in which we lived. It was a time in which uh, little black boys could walk through the streets and expect to be insulted with uh, distant shouts of pejoratives, racial epithets, uh, for no reason other than the fact that they were walking through the streets. Uh, these things happened. And so one lived on tiptoes in a certain respect, not within one's home or in one's familiar precincts, but whenever one left those familiar precincts, one walked on tiptoes. So, so there were uh, rituals of supposed respect that had more to do with a sense of terror than it had to do with any human sympathy. Wow. What, how do you think that that has changed 
the way, how have you carried that throughout your life? Like all of those experiences, how do you think it's changed the way that you interact with other people or you think about things? I would say it's not changed it at all in the most fundamental respect, but that's because I had the special blessing of a fortunate home, not a wealthy home by any stretch of the imagination, but morally fortunate. I had a particularly a strong and saintly mother who gave counsel consistently about how to conduct oneself. And the most important of those counsels that I ever heard from her uh, came in the form of the maxim, hold your head up, boy. And now that has a double meaning, but the most important meaning was, of course, be have self-respect. Don't, don't surrender that no matter what else. Always have self-respect. And so I entered the world uncowed. I, I had not internalized any sense of inferiority or deference. I expected that I could perform on any stage and I never hesitated to mount any stage. And so I, I went into the world with secure confidence about who I was and what I would be able to accomplish. Wow, that's it's pretty uncommon, I think, from things I've read and people I've talked to. But that's great. That's so important, I think. Yes, I was going to say you're, you're right about that, except I would tell you this. The narrative doesn't reflect the reality, because what was true of me was true of many other people besides uh, and it's a hidden aspect and dimension of American life today that there were many people who, in whom self-confidence was bred. It is also true, and we'll talk about this later, that that self-confidence has been undermined by large public narratives beaten like a drumbeat. But back in the day, uh, it was not undermined, and it fueled a pro period of progress that is undeniable. Are you proud to be an American? Yes, Never have awesome. been anything but. Never have been anything but. I, that, that is why I do not refer to myself as an African-American. I'm black. I, I wrote an op-ed essay some 35 or so years ago called Why I Am Still Black. And in that essay, I said, when I became black, I became black for good. Uh, and I meant that in both senses. So it was an intentional pun. But uh, what, what the point is this. Uh, this is my home. This is the home my uh, forebears chose in addition to having been brought here. And, and people often mistake, they think of slavery as an enforced resettlement. Well, it was. But that doesn't mean the people who were resettled under force did not come on their own to adopt the land in which they had been settled. That's a distinction that seems to elude many intelligences today for reasons I do not understand. That's a good point. Can you explain how you personally reconcile this past and what you grew up with, with the Founding Fathers' vision of liberty, equality, and the promises of what America can be, should be? I never had to work hard to reconcile that because the evidences are all around us that, in fact, it was the promise of the founding that gave hope to the slaves. People forget that. Frederick Douglass, of course, and one of the essays in, in The State of Black America by Glenn Lowry talks about this, wrote an essay, Whose Fourth of July Is This?, in which he dealt precisely with the question, uh, how, where do black people stand in relationship to the principles and promises of the Declaration of Independence? And the point of the essay and his eventual embrace of the United States Constitution and his embrace of black patriotism was precisely to say that these promises were promises that were human in content, not particular to one group of people or a tribe or a religion or an ethnicity. And they therefore inspired all human beings, whatever their formal circumstances or their uh, momentarily assigned societal roles. So the slaves themselves were motivated by the call of liberty. And, and this is illustrated in so much literature, but nowhere more profoundly than in Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which opens with a portrait of Uncle Tom's cabin, the cabin he built himself. And on the walls of that cabin hangs a portrait of George Washington to illustrate the sense in which 
Washington and the founders spoke not just to the immediate participants in the founding, but to all who were in reach of the words of the founding. And speaking of Frederick Douglass, when I was reading this book, it it kind of reminded me of him in a lot of ways because he wrote to make his white audience understand the horrors of slavery, but the fact that the Constitution applies not only to white people, but to people of every color. And it seems that, at least when I was reading it, that the book was doing something similar, but to a black audience. Without omitting the horrors of slavery, Jim Crow, racism, it seems like it's making the case that the promise is contained in the American heritage and that that's very real. Is that what you were trying to do? Am I reading it correctly? You're reading it very well. And you you read it well also to read it in the context of what Douglas was doing. I would like to remind you that as Frederick Douglas carried out his campaign for liberty, he carried it out in a context in which he had at the same moment had to fight off paternalism from his abolitionist allies. So he ended up breaking with his sponsor Garrison at a certain point because his sponsors had a tendency to want to be overlords <laughs> as, as he experienced the sentiments. And, and he wanted to express himself as a human being who could think, particularly since he was an autodidact who had taught himself <laughs> to read and think and, and was accomplished at it and who could make decisions and judgments on his own. So he had to ward off paternalism to his left while warding off oppression to his right. (laughs) And and of course, what this book, The State of Black America, does, which speaks to blacks and non-blacks alike in this regard, and I'll explain why in a moment, but it says that is the same place we are now. We are not merely showing the promise of freedom, we're also showing the dangers of paternalism, dependency, and victimhood. And, I don't know, it just, it does a very good job. Um, you've, so you edited this book, you also authored and co-authored a few pieces. And so it addresses the issues facing black Americans today, but you've also said it's all about America entirely. And... I mean, so in the piece, Competing Visions, you lay out one of the most profound misunderstandings of the promise of America and how that's at the heart of the race conflict today, which is the belief that the effective use of liberty depends on a prior guarantee of material security. Can you unpack that and explain the conflict for us? Certainly, I'd be happy to do that. This goes back a long way, and it involves things that we don't discuss directly in the book. Uh, But uh, we we take off from a later stage for the point at which this progress began. It actually achieved its clearest distinction in the period between 1932 and 1948 in the hands of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who in 1932 gave his initial speech in which he laid out the argument that freedom was dependent on guarantee of security. And then he developed that subsequently in 1942, 44, uh, when he laid out his four freedoms. And his freedoms were essentially boiled down to freedom from want. That was the decisive freedom. And so there was a right to health care, a right to economic security, a right to education. All of these things seemed to have to be guaranteed before we can enjoy what the preamble to the Constitution calls the blessings of liberty. And so what we are saying is this. The blessings of liberty are none other than the things one can accomplish when free, when one enjoys liberty. Liberty is what assures personal agency. And it is personal agency that brings and wins these blessings. It is personal agency that assures material security. It is not the other way around. So we entered a period in our politics in which we drove home the message that liberty was of no use to people who weren't already in a position where they had no need for liberty. If, if all their rights, wants are guaranteed, we ask, what's the point of the liberty? If they are not going to provide for themselves, if they cannot be self-governing, 
self-reliant. What is the need for liberty? That was the disconnect. And that disconnect reached a crescendo in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson declared equal opportunity is not enough. He made that statement at Howard University. And it was, of course, dressed in terms to American blacks. But it was addressed to all Americans. It's saying to all Americans, you cannot place confidence in the principles of the founding. You must instead rely on the provision of your needs by government before you can exert personal agency. And when you exert personal agency, the effect to which you will exert it will not be to attain prosperity, but simply to practice the enjoyment of the goods made available to you in the welfare state. This message, as it was delivered to black people in particular, carried an additional kicker. And that additional kicker was to say to black people, you can't do it. You are not able. You have to depend on us. And that disabling message is what subsequently injected poison into the veins of our culture and created a cycle of dependency and victimhood in which people cease to expect their own exertions to change their situation in life and to demand the exertions of the state to change their situations in life. So we went through a period of time in which we inverted the promises of the Republic. In fact, you might even go farther and say we didn't just invert them, we eviscerated them. And we're now living with the results of that. And how did that shift come about? Why Why did it happen when it happened? What led up to that? Well, there's a loss of faith in the Republic. Uh, we, we saw this loss of faith enunciated in 1936 in the Caroline Products decision by the United States Supreme Court, which had nothing in itself to do with these questions. But in the process of solving a problem of commerce and taxation, the court, in a footnote, made an observation which came to control our life ever after. And that was the famous footnote four in the Caroline Products case, which announced that Republican institutions, processes of majority rule, do not work to protect discrete and insular minorities. That was the language of the court I'm quoting there. Discrete and insular minorities, i.e., there are sub-communities, not part of the whole community, which have no benefit from participating in the processes of Republican rule, Republican government, and ultimately, therefore, self-government. So the working out of that understanding over time has been a working out of the belief that what was created in the United States was created for a particular group of people and was not, therefore, in and of itself, the appropriate foundation for governing political life for human beings in general, which is totally inconsistent with the founding itself. The very first of the Federalist Papers, that written by Alexander Hamilton in 1787, enunciated that it has been reserved for the people of this country, the United States, to decide once and for all whether all mankind, not just the people of the United States, but all mankind are capable or not of establishing good government based on reflection and choice, or whether they must forever depend on accident and fate. So the, the founders thought they were deciding something for humankind, not just for a few Europeans gathered on the Atlantic coast of North America. Since that time, that principle has been rejected. And we're living therefore, in the period of the loss of faith in the principles of the Republic. And can you paint a picture for us of, I mean, you mentioned the idea, like the victimhood mentality and all that, but can you lead us through how that grew and brought us to today from Lyndon Johnson to now? How did that grow? What does it look like? Well, yes, and we, we, of course, do that in the book. I, I do it in my essay called Competing Visions, which is a discussion of what I just outlined for you. But it goes deeper than that, and it shows how this pernicious concept managed to insinuate itself 
into the thinking of icons of progressivism and civil rights advances. And of course, there's no more important icon of that than Martin Luther King Jr. And I show how he stepped on his own lines. Uh, kind of, that's a statement that applies to the theater, but we can use it here. Uh, because his original line was that there was a promissory note in the founding, and we still needed to cash that check, which meant he was saying when he began that the principles are good and we should depend on them. But over time, he began to abandon that. And he began to counsel his Black audiences in particular that they were surrounded by white racism and that oppression that resulted from white racism made it impossible for them to change their circumstances before you change the society, the system. And that line of argument, which, he, which reached its peak when he was spending a couple of years in Chicago working there on economic and educational issues, that line of argument insinuated itself on the authority he had previously established to penetrate largely communities all across the United States where black people were gathered. And so the sense that, well, we are victims and we cannot expect things to be different until we somehow put an end to the victimhood, that there is not opportunity for us to achieve through our own exertion or for us to demonstrate through the exercise of responsibility our control over our own lives and circumstances. So, so that radiated out from that central moral axis into a pervasive narrative, which we now are witnessing in the form of latter-day descendants of that era who have sponsored what they call an anti-racism campaign, where they argue that the United States is characterized by racism with a capital R, systemic, institutional, structural, which conditions everything that happens in the country. And it's that false narrative, that is the poison that's been injected into the veins of the culture. And it affects not only American blacks, but non-blacks as well. And not merely non-blacks in the form of white guilt, which Shelby Steele has written so well about, but also non-blacks in the form of competition to become victims. So it is no longer only so-called poor black people who are victims, but everybody wants to qualify as a victim of some form of oppression in order to gain title to some kind of special privilege or recognition. And all of those practices are insidious and undermine the insistence in the founding on elevating self-government to our first priority. I like that. Thank you. Um, so on the cover of the book, it reads, um, in the 21st century, it is dangerous to ask the wrong questions about the state of black America. What are the important questions that we should be asking that we aren't? What are what are the right questions that we're asking that are maybe perceived as wrong today? Oh, that's a wonderful question, and thank you for it. And the mm -hmm. first question that is dangerous to ask is, who is an American? Because when you ask that question, you're going to enter into a thicket of distinctions and qualifications based on identifying all kinds of sub-identities, subgroups and affiliations and allegiances, and never get to the core question, is there such a thing as an American? And if you insist that there might be such a thing as an American, you're going to be accused of racism. You're going to be accused of excluding others. You're going to be accused of various forms of cultural appropriation. So that the danger is there is a cudgel that is being used as a, an instrument of division in the culture that is a threat that hangs over the head of any individual who speaks up candidly about these issues, who speaks up, for example, about the degree of responsibility in urban communities for the rampant crime and violent crime rate that terrorizes those communities. Uh, 
Anybody who questions whether that is a result of the legacy of slavery or a result of the failure of government in those communities is going to be accused of racism. And I can go on down the line, but the best way for me to convey this to you is to tell you a little story about something that happened over 30 years ago. And that's when I was leaving my position as chair of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. And at that time, I appeared on Capitol Hill before the Wednesday group, and that's the group of Republicans in the House of Representatives who meet in an informal caucus for discussion once a week. And I went to give them an update on the situation in the country, and I closed that update with providing some counsel about how they might speak to the question of race and what needed to be done in the form of policy to address that. And when I concluded my remarks, we had a discussion period, And in that discussion period, to a person in that group, they responded to me that they could not say what I was advising them to say, because if they did so, they would be called racist. Now, that was 30 years ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. And that's an illustration why it's dangerous to tell the truth. Who is an American, then? Any human being who is willing to accept the obligation of self-government and the responsibilities that go with that in living among a society of human beings similarly prepared to accept that obligation. That person is an American, an American in spirit, to be sure, an American in citizenship when they actually integrate into this community, whether through immigration or otherwise. Now, this is something I've discussed at great length in an essay called The Truth About Citizenship that I published some 20 years ago, in which I lay out that to be an American is not to be born of a tribe. It is not to have a particular bloodline. It is not to uh, confess a particular religious faith. It is not to have a cultural background. To be an American is to accept the responsibility of self-government and the responsibility, therefore, to develop within oneself that character that George Washington summoned from his fellow citizens in 1783 and thereafter when he said, we have a national character to establish. Being an American is a work that each human being can undertake on his or her own. We get to make ourselves Americans by living up to those high standards, the high standard of self-government. That is what makes an American an American. I agree with that. That's a good response. Um, How then should we have these conversations? How can we have these conversations if there are wrong questions to ask or things that questions, as you say, the questions we should be asking and the right questions to ask, but those that are frowned upon or the ones that get you called a racist or worse. How do we have those conversations in today's environment? I will tell you what my mother told me. Hold your head up, boy. Hold your head up, girl. (laughs) Be willing. Be willing to stand in the face of what you know is going to be an assault. Do not be intimidated. Do not be bullied. Speak the truth. In other words, the thing to do in answer to your question, how is to face down the false narrative, not to be intimidated by it. And can you I mean, we've talked about this a little bit, but can you maybe with examples explain the narrative that is being told today? Certainly. Uh, Consider the New York Times 1619 project. It tells us that America was born in slavery grew in slavery and can never mean anything other than the consequences, the evil consequences of slavery. And therefore, we need to unmake America. That's the story that we're being told. That's the grand narrative. That's the narrative that sustains the anti-racism campaign. Now, clearly, that narrative requires a response. And it cannot be a response that simply amounts into saying, uh, no, you're wrong. It must be a response that actually tells the real history, not the false history you see in the New York Times 1619 project. It is not false that slaves came in 1619. Yes, there were a handful of people, two or three slaves, yes, who arrived with the pilgrims, undisputably. But 
But here's the question. Did their presence establish the character of the society? Or were there other elements that established the character of the society? And some having even greater influence than the presence of the slaves. Did Pastor Robinson's sermon in Haven, when he sent the pilgrims on their way and admonished them to establish free and civil government, self-governing institutions, was that perhaps a more powerful cultural influence in the presence of slaves? Contradictory, perhaps, to have these things both present, but which had the greater weight and which ultimately produced the outcomes? These are questions we tell by going back to the history and looking at it. And let me give you a very precise understanding of this from the ground level up, from the point of view of the ordinary human being. There was someone on the Mayflower for whom it was not the first trip to North America. It was his second trip. His name was Stephen Hopkins. Hopkins had been present at Jamestown in 1609. That was a very different exploration than the pilgrims sailing. The pilgrims were resettling. The pilgrims were going to a country they did not know, willing to confront uncertainties and dangers to start a new life. Jamestown, they went to a country they did not know, but they went as adventurers seeking to exploit what they expected to find in the form of resources there. They were mainly aristocrats in Jamestown. Hopkins was a clerk among them. He had the advantage of being literate, so it made him a useful clerk. He was also a hard worker, which made him important to those to that community. But they did not treat the natives well, the Indians well. They had no respect for them and sought to coerce them and force them to do the work that the aristocrats were not prepared to do for themselves. So apparently... Stephen Hopkins got in trouble in Jamestown because he voiced his opinion about the injustices he observed. And that voicing of opinions got him sentenced to death. Yes, prosecuted and sentenced to death. Now, he was ultimately not pardoned, but excused from his penalty, probably because he was one of the few of the English settlers there who did any work at all and they were utterly dependent on. <laughs> but then his family, his children, his wife died back in England because he'd left a wife and children in England. And the word reached him at Jamestown that she had died. So he left to return for his orphan children. That's why he escaped the utter destruction of Jamestown because it was, of course, subsequently wiped out. And then after a few years taking care of his children, he joined the Pilgrim Expedition to North America that eventually landed there at Plymouth. And so he became part of that colony, now in a very different role, still exercising some of his responsibilities as a literate person who could be a clerk, but also going into business for himself, opening a public house. And he got in trouble once again. Why did he get in trouble then? Because he admitted all comers. He did not distinguish people by social class or background or ethnicity or faith. Anyone who wanted to put feet up, rest a moment, take a draft of ale or whatever it was, he would welcome into his public house. And he was not condemned to death for this, but he was criticized by the local authorities for that kind of uh, profligacy. So uh, what we see in Hopkins is a different side of 1619 an undercurrent of inclusivity. Why would we emphasize the slavery more than emphasize Hopkins? Somebody might say, well, maybe that's because Hopkins had no effect or influence after all. He never became a leader, a political spokesman, or any of those things. But it is nevertheless true that in the generation next after, not his second, but the third generation from Stephen Hopkins, there was another Stephen Hopkins who was in Rhode Island, in that part where they had moved over from Massachusetts. And that Stephen Hopkins became governor of Rhode Island, became a signer of the Declaration of Independence. That Stephen Hopkins actually had purchased a slave or two because the practice had grown up. But by the time he was at the uh, signing the Declaration of Independence, he had come to the mature conviction that it was wrong. 
and he manumitted his slaves. So, so if we look at that stream of history, now this is looking below the level of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, George Washington, all the people about whom false claims are made in the 1619 Project. And imagine that what we're looking at is the heartbeat of America. We see a dynamic there that is moving in the direction of abolition, which achieves, achieves its articulate form of expression at the time of the Declaration of Independence. And thereafter, mounts the great, great obstacles and with some setbacks along the way, but nevertheless consistently towards the eventual abolition of the 1860s. That's the story of America, the true history, which has been falsified by the New York Times. Telling that story is the way to gain, regain control of the narrative. That, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea that. The fact that I had no idea, I mean, I look around, I read things, but that sort of narrative seems to be nowhere. And yes. bringing that to the forefront, even just to combat the other narrative, you know, more information, more viewpoints can't be bad. You know, that's how we find the truth. And so... Thank you for sharing. Um, let's talk about black patriotism. Um, I, I rarely hear about patriotism of black Americans, and it seems as though there, there isn't, right? And that's kind of what I think it's a commonly held conception of America today. It's that Black Americans are not patriotic. They don't like America. But you said you like America. And during the Civil War, during different wars like Vietnam, you see a lot of patriotism. Why don't you why do you think that it isn't highlighted? Well, uh, another excellent question and for which there is a very straight and direct answer. Uh, this answer is given to us in opinion polling all the time. And people ask uh, American blacks these questions about their allegiance. And at one level, you can find that they are, of course, we see this in military service, loyal to the United States. And we also see something that is more important than any opinion poll or any narrative. And that is the exits are never crowded in the United States. O only the entrances are crowded. So that, that tells us something about where people want to be. But more importantly, the opinion polls continually, consistently reflect a high degree of alienation in black communities. So at levels of 40% and above, you will find American blacks who will express doubts about whether they belong or are accepted in the United States, who will express, therefore, some degree of antagonism to what they take to be the political structures in the United States and will not therefore embrace the heritage, who will even reject the heritage as somehow being in principle antagonistic to their existence. These are people who accept, for example, the falsehood that the three-fifths compromise meant that the founders believed black people were only three-fifths of a human being. That is historically false, and it's demonstrated in the documents of the era. And we find intelligent people repeating that on the right and the left. So I'm not now disparaging one side and not the other. I can say this of the, the late Colin Powell or Condoleezza Rice, both of whom embraced the three-fifths human being construct, which is false, uh, and many others besides them. So, so what you have is the experience of black people being uh, bombarded with uh, arguments that call into question the reasonableness of attachment to the United States. So what the remarkable thing in the United States is that despite all of the weight of the attack on allegiance and loyalty and patriotism, American blacks remain in the United States. They do not rush to exit. The exits of people like Du Bois, for example, or the uh, Baldwin or, or some other notable figures 
are insignificant because what's happening in the valleys among the masses is what counts, not what happens in a rare individual here or there. And so that high level of alienation may be taken as the expression of a lack of patriotism. But it is false in the following way, in the sense that people experience alienation under the weight of the narrative we've talked about, under the weight of the sense of victimhood that we've talked about. And we know that they are dealing with a construct that makes it very hard to stand up and defend something at the same time as wanting to defend one's own claim to some degree of self-respect or dignity. When you're told all the time that those two things are in contradiction, that's hard to do. Not everybody can do what Joe Lewis did in World War II. And he was criticized for his efforts on behalf of the United States in fighting that war. And when he was criticized, he would say in response to his critics, there ain't nothing wrong with the United States that Hitler can solve. And we would say today, with regard to black patriotism, that a similar message is necessary. There ain't nothing wrong with the United States that socialism can solve. So the reality is that we have counseled a return to black patriotism because it holds the key not only to the restoration of commitment in American black communities, but more importantly, it holds the key to the salvation of the United States itself. For, for notice, it is not just that American, uh, American blacks have diminished patriotic attachment to the country, but that patriotic attachment to the country is being uh, cultivated across the board. The 1619 Project doesn't just communicate to American Blacks. It communicates to all non-Blacks equally and even more powerfully, such that they end up rejecting the past of the United States without having any clear idea of what they're embracing for the future. And that future will not be a happy future if we continue on the path we're on. So that black patriotism has the unique potentiality to put America back on track. Self-assertion of black patriotism would be the single thing that could most forcefully and swiftly rescue the country itself from the assault on its continuing prospect for survival. In her confirmation hearing to the Supreme Court, Katanji Brown-Jackson said, quote, During this hearing, I hope that you will see how much I love our country and the Constitution and the rights that make us free, end quote. Do you think she's representative or is she an oddity? Uh, no, I think that what she said during the hearing is pro forma. I'll be candid with you. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm not going to take it seriously until I understand what she thinks the Constitution means. And that we'll see on the court. Because if she enters into that stream of interpretation of the Constitution, which holds that we cannot read it as the founders read it because the founders were racist and misguided, then her purported love for it is pro forma and not substantial. So then what does it require to revive black patriotism? It's someone to call on it. <laughs> you know, this is one of those intuitive things, right? Mm -hmm. That if, if one asks for it, one might be surprised by what one will get. It's as simple as that. But we do not characteristically ask for it. What do we hear? We hear politicians say, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Uh, we hear politicians say, look, black people, I'll take care of you. You can't take care of yourself. And I can keep going. And you know the litany, so I won't repeat them all. The point is this. If we transition from expecting black people to look for handouts and letting black people know we look to them to extend the helping hand, that in itself will give a great boost to black patriotism. What, before our last question, I want to end with this. What is the state of black America today and what are your hopes for it? 
Well, there is where the book comes in handy, right? Uh, the book is chock full of history, uh, with statistics, uh, with discussion of policy options, alternatives, uh, with demonstrations of accomplishments. And so what, what the book is doing is saying the state of Black America is dynamic and has been ever since the end of slavery. We underscore the tremendous population growth between 1860 and 1890, double in population growth, a rate of growth, which is natural. There was no immigration feeding into that. That was natural growth. This is incredible. Extraordinary in human experience. Uh, the increase in the rate of literacy by 1920 to 50% already. The, the great economic progress that was made, where, where we noticed that during the era, the darkest era of repression, the era of enforced segregation, Jim Crow, the era of widespread Lynching without fear of consequences. We must underscore that not merely lynching, but lynching with the complicity of the law and without having to fear punishment. So that we can say during the era when black people were post slavery were subject to the greatest terror threats, they nevertheless showed enormous progress. And so when we saw riots and massacres in Tulsa and Charleston and Atlanta and elsewhere. We weren't seeing poor, helpless black people being killed, as in Tulsa. We were seeing what was called Black Wall Street. That's where the massacre took place. People who were moving into the middle class, into the mainstream. So that if we understand that the era of enforced segregation was an attempt to put the genie back in the bottle, then we would be recognizing that today we were reached the point where we overcame the attempt to put the genie back in the bottle, and we would be resolved once again to unleash those powers rather than to try to manage them from government. We, we need to understand something, and I'll, I'll tell a quick story, and I know time is short, but this won't go too long. Mm -hmm. so, so in 2018, I carried a group of teachers throughout the South uh, to visit Civil War, Civil Rights Memorials. So the Civil Rights Movement Memorials. Uh, we went to many places, including Selma, Alabama. When we were in Selma, we went to Bethel AME Church. It was called Big Bethel. That's where the people who marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1963 in the struggle for voting rights in Alabama met to strategize. And so as I'm sitting there with the teachers in the sanctuary and lecturing them about that event, I pause in the middle of the lecture. I pause silent for a second. And I look up and around me, then I look back to the teachers and I say, who do you think built this structure? There was silence. It was a question that came out of the blue, it had nothing to do with anything we were talking about. But finally, somebody spoke up and says, well, the people who worship here, I suppose. And I said, exactly right. That was the first decade of the 20th century at the height of repression. And this magnificent piece of architecture, this magnificent edifice, which is truly beautiful, was erected by these poor black parishioners, no, not poor, resourceful, people who were intelligent and creative, who had personal agency, who were able to do things, who were not cowering in weakness waiting to be helped. The state of black America is nothing less than that state still there, but veiled from our eyes. If we open our eyes, we will see that the way Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells saw it in 1893 when they protested exclusion of blacks from the Columbian Exposition. And what did they argue? They argued that in 1619, slaves were brought here. And in 1865, we ended that slavery. And since 1865, we have lived the promise of America. And by excluding blacks, you're not failing to tell the story of our accomplishments. You're failing to tell the story of America's accomplishments. Because this is a tribute to the strength and the resilience of the American principles, what we have seen slaves do post-slavery. That's the state of black America, a state of people who rose from abject want to full sufficiency and who can rise still further. 
Thank you for your time and thank you for your wisdom. Before we close, what is one thing that you believed at one time in your life that you later changed your position on and why? Oh, that is an unexpected question, a very difficult question. And I don't mean difficult in the sense that I've never changed my mind on any things. But has there been anything so very important that I would want to highlight having had to reverse myself? You know, I'm not like St. Augustine. I didn't spend my time fighting against God or demanding that God prove himself before I received him. So I can't point to that kind of conversion experience. I, I'm not someone who was ever prey to the easy analogies and false histories that surround us. Because as I said at the start of our conversation, I grew up in an era where we challenged everything. So I suppose the most important thing to say is this. Uh, when I reached maturity, that is to say, was entering into manhood, I had a disposition to want to know as much as I could about the most important questions. And I believed at that time, because I was a pre-med major in college, that I would best assure the chance to pursue what is good by going into medicine. And then I had a moment in which I found myself confronted with reality that I wanted to do good, and I had no, no, no real knowledge what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned that in a curious way. I, uh, I was an activist as a youth, and I had been invited to give a lecture in San Francisco at a meeting of the Philadelphia Society on the New Left, which I delivered, and, and I was satisfied with my work, and it was well-received, so... I was appropriately pleased that others thought I had done well. But it was a, a program in which many people were speaking. And one of the other speakers was a man named Harry Joppa. And he got up and delivered his talk. And our talks were not related one to the other, so we weren't responding to one another. But, but he gave a talk, the breath and penetration of which so overwhelmed me that I said to myself, what am I doing here? I don't belong on the same stage as that man. I don't know what I'm talking about. And what I need to do is go wherever he is so that I can find it out. So that's the only thing I can tell you about having changed the course of my life based on new input. Once again, I'd like to thank my guest for their time and insight, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at thegreatantidote at gmail.com. Thank you.